I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about his new book, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream, we have with us the legendary Steve Case, chairman and CEO of venture capital firm Revolution LLC. Steve's also, of course, the co-founder of America Online, and I wish I still had my AOL email account because I'd have real street cred if I did. Steve, welcome to Truth of the Matter. Good to be with you, Andrew. So your Rise of the Rest initiative is something you've been at for well over a decade, and this book is some reporting and accounting of it. Tell me why you initially thought that major you know, investment needed to go outside of coastal cities and, and coastal capitals, Ca- Silicon Valley, Boston, New York. What's it all about? Well, a couple of things triggered it. But you know, my instinct is there was a problem that also could become an opportunity. And some of that goes back to what you mentioned about AOL. We started uh, AOL in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., 1985 at the time. There really was no venture capital in the area, so it's hard to get the money to get started. We had to go to other cities. It was hard to get people in big companies to join a little company that would seem like a risk. It was a struggle. I think that, that experience in the late 80s and 90s building America Online in the Northern Virginia area probably helped inform my thinking on this, this topic and probably gave me a little bit of empathy for entrepreneurs in other places that were trying to do similar things. But the real trigger was I was asked probably now 12, 13 years ago to co-chair the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. That led to a series of recommendations, including one that the, the White House uh, took up that President Obama asked me to chair something called Startup America Partnership. And I worked on his Jobs and Competitiveness Council. That led to things like the, the Jobs Act that passed the Congress about 10 years ago. So that really opened my, my eyes to two things that I, I probably should have known, but didn't really know. The first was that new companies are the big job creators in the country, not small business, not big business, but big business, but new business. So companies under five years of startups. That surprised me. And the second was that overwhelmingly the startups were backed in just a few cities. 75% of the venture capital dollars were going to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. So it doesn't take a rocket side to say if, if at the time the Jobs Council was put in place, unemployment was nearing 10%. There was a broad concern about you know creating more jobs. They, well, if you're going to create more jobs, you have to back new companies. And if the startup capital backed those new companies is not available to most entrepreneurs in most parts of the country, no wonder we have a problem. So let's go solve that problem. That really led us to launch uh, Rise of Rest and start doing bus tours and then later launch a fund and then ultimately uh, write the book. So what is a typical Rise of the Rest city that is prime for innovation and great talent and, and great startup companies? Well, part of the surprise is we've done this now. We've done bus tours to 44 cities. We have investments with our fund in over 100 different cities. So really been all over the country. The real surprise is that this isn't one or two or three new cities. This is dozens of cities. We've seen interesting things in Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Nashville, Tennessee, Detroit, Michigan, Denver, Colorado, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Just a lot of things happening in a lot of cities. And while they historically have, have struggled to get the venture capital attention, it's changed. Even in the last decade since we started this effort, 
1,400 new regional venture firms have started in these rise of rest cities, meaning outside of San Francisco, New York City, and, and Boston, 1,400. So they, they, they're getting more, the entrepreneurs there are getting more of the capital they need to start their companies and, and scale their companies. And people are starting to see the benefits of these, of these what we call tentpole companies in the book. A company like Exact Target that started up in Indianapolis was acquired by Salesforce five, six years ago for two and a half billion dollars. There's now 2,000 employees for Salesforce in Indianapolis, second largest office outside of San Francisco. And a number of the people who were part of Exact Target have gone on to start accelerators, start a venture fund, start a couple dozen new companies. And suddenly, Indianapolis is quite strong around enterprise software. So we're seeing more and more of these examples as I was reflecting on this, the journey over the last decade. So this is a story that needs to be told. People need to understand what's happening in all these cities, understand how a lot of entrepreneurs are reimagining some 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 core industry. I think it bodes well for this next chapter uh, in America. So in the last 10 years, 1,400 new regional venture firms started in Rise of the Rest Cities. That's about a 600% increase in VC capital dollars going to those cities. Why do you think that's now happening? Well, you have to go back a little bit. The, the idea of venture capital is a relatively new concept just a little over half a century ago. And started in New York, then moved to Boston, then moved to San Francisco. And because that's where the money was and also happened to be where some great universities were, suddenly some things you know coalesced around them and we created this kind of increasing return dynamic, what some people call a network effect, where because that's where a lot of the people were, that's where most of the money was, that led more people to leave where they were to go to the coast, particularly go to places like Silicon Valley, which then led to more successes and success begets successes. And, and it you know, led to those cities being, being very strong in terms of the innovation economy, but also led to a little bit of a hollowing out of many parts of the country. The people wanted to be part of that tech sector, the innovation economy, in many parts of the country, particularly in the middle of the country, felt like they had to leave. So there was a brain drain from many cities. And part of our focus in the last decade is how do you slow the brain drain and actually create a boomerang of people returning? The good news is not only those 1,400 new firms, but also the pandemic, it looks like it's, it's going to end up being a kind of a tipping point, an accelerator. It did lead people to rethink life, rethink work. Obviously, remote work and hybrid work has become more more common. Some people did decide to leave big cities like San Francisco, New York to move to other, other places in the country. Many of the investors sitting in those cities historically would insist that entrepreneurs meet them in person. Suddenly we're doing pitch meetings by Zoom and we're more open to ideas from other places. And the other dynamic that, that's really exciting to see is in this next wave of innovation, I've called the, the third wave of the internet, sort of when the internet meets the real world. Some of the biggest industries are up for grabs. And what's going to be different about the third wave versus this last couple of decades is partnerships are going to be critically important. I happen to be in, in uh, Northwest Arkansas right now because I'll be uh, speaking at a, a summit uh, around land investment for one of the companies we back called Acre Trader. The founder of that company, Carter Malloy, actually was in San Francisco working for Hedge Fund in San Francisco when he came up with the idea of Acre Trader, which was a platform to invest in farmland. He decided I'm going to be more successful getting farmers to trust me if I'm in Arkansas, not in, not in California. And he, and he moved. Another example is there's a company we backed in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee called Freight Waves. The founder there built a platform kind of like Bloomberg for the trucking and logistics industry. I didn't know this till we were there on our bus, but Chattanooga is where some of the largest trucking companies in America are headquartered. So that's actually the best place to build. 
something like Freightway. So it, it, as healthcare in particular, one-sixth of the economy, if partnerships are important, being closer to a Mayo Clinic or closer to a Cleveland Clinic or closer to United Health or HCA is going to advantage you. And that's going to advantage these entrepreneurs in these rise of the rest cities if we can get them the capital they need, if we can get them the talent they need, and if we can create more vibrant startup communities in, in these rise of the rest cities. Is it easier to get the talent to these cities now after the pandemic because maybe people don't want to live in urban coastal big cities maybe people want a little bit of more space they want a better cost of living there's a bunch of factors and obviously everybody's a little bit different some have a desire to be in a particular part of the country maybe they grew up there went to school there others do see the the cost of living advantage also the cost of operations if you raise money in one of these rise rest cities it might go two or three times further than if you were in a big kind of superstar you know, cities that might be attracted by some of the, you know, the, the tax benefits. There's a bunch of different factors that, that, you know, play into this, but increasingly it's the strategic reason to be in these cities, but where it actually might be the better place to launch your company as opposed to traditionally when, when it's been on the, on the coast. So some of it is just this dynamic of the internet third wave accelerating. Some of it is the, you know, what's been building over the last decade in terms of more venture capital going to more people and, and more places. But some of it clearly was the pandemic which really did kind of create almost a shake the snow globe moment for, for the world and for a lot of people and their families and a lot of companies. And that's the, the big rethink is now leading to a resort. And that could result in a shift of population. And for sure, it led to, I think we hit peak Silicon Valley three years ago. This notion that you had to be in Silicon Valley in order to be a real entrepreneur and real, really participate in the innovation economy. Well, that's not true anymore. There's still advantages to be there, but you don't have to be there. And that's going to really create an unlock for innovation, I think, all across the country. What's the ingredients that are necessary for a rise of the rest city to be successful? I'm assuming it has to have or some proximity to a major university. Yeah, there's a bunch of factors. There's actually a whole chapter in the book uh, that talk about some of the, the key elements that access to talent is critical. As you say, universities have always been a magnet for talent and also an incubator of ideas. And so surrounding those ideas with entrepreneurs who can take those ideas and turn them into products and services and, and, and companies that then can create a lot of jobs is super important. You also do need that capital, which is why we've been focused on trying to get venture capital to more parts of the country. There are absolutely people that left where they were because they didn't feel they could really start the company there and get the capital they needed to, to, to scale that, you know, that, that company. You also need access to some of these key partners that are going to power some of these new industries that, that are going to be important. So trying to understand what's going on in your particular city or your region, what sort of domain expertise, industry expertise you can, you can build on is, is another, you know, key key factor. You also need a more collaborative community. This is one of the things that we were always surprised by when we were hitting the hitting the road with our ride of the rest buses. In cities, even some modest-sized cities, you would think there'd be more integration, more collaboration uh, across the city supporting entrepreneurs. And often it's kind of fragmented, kind of siloed. So one of the areas we really focused on is is trying to promote those more integrated, collaborative startup communities. That, that, that's helpful as well. So there's a number of, of factors. The good news is when we first started talking about this 10 years ago, people were skeptical. At least most people were skeptical. You know, a few years ago, they're kind of like, huh, maybe there's something to this. There's enough successes in different industries that it had to kind of get people's uh, attention. But it's only now, as we're coming out of the pandemic, that there, I think there's a broader recognition that something has been brewing, something's been bubbling, 
And it really is likely to accelerate in, in the next decade. And that goes back to the original question you asked. It's, the reason this is important is not just to, to back entrepreneurs and help them build companies, help them kind of pursue the American dream, although, of course, that's important. It's not just finding great investments, often with valuations that are more moderate than if those same companies were in other coastal cities, which can result in really terrific investment returns. It's also what happens in those cities and how innovation is driving job creation that's creating more frankly, more hope and opportunity. A lot of places that have felt left out and and, uh, and left behind, I think that could even help knit together, at least in a small way, a very divided country that is divided, as you know, in a lot of ways. But one of them is this opportunity gap where a few people in a few places celebrate disruption, innovation, Silicon Valley, tech, and are benefiting from it. But most people in most places do feel left out, do feel left behind. Building that, that those new companies and those new jobs is important. You know, a great example of that the first stop of our first Rise of Rest tour eight years ago was Detroit, which a hundred years ago, Detroit was kind of like Silicon Valley. It was the hot city of, of the time. It was the fifth largest city in America. Everybody wanted to be part of the car revolution. They wanted to be moving to Detroit and then lost 60% of its population. And the year before we rolled in on our bus, which was eight years ago, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. But now, because of startups, it's booming. I was there just a couple of weeks ago, part of this book tour. A lot of the buildings that were kind of empty 10 years ago are now full, mostly with startup companies. And we backed a couple of companies there, including Shinola, which makes watches, and StockX, which is a kind of a stock exchange for sneakers and other, other things. Both those companies didn't exist 10 years ago, and each have more than a 1,000 employees in Detroit. And it's not just tech employees, it's a broader array of employees, including people that get, get retrained from having worked in factories to work in building uh, watches or in the case of StockX authenticating merchandise. And the last point I'll make is it's also important to realize it's not just the jobs created by the startups themselves. The data is pretty compelling that for every startup job, there's five other jobs in the community that are created because as people are, as these cities are growing, people are building houses and restaurants are being open. And I saw that firsthand when America Online was growing in the Northern Virginia area. It wasn't just what was happening with our company. It was what's happening around our company. You know, I grew up in suburban Maryland, and we were always jealous that you were in Northern Virginia and not on our side of the river. Yeah, I used to have some debates with the economic development folks in Maryland who tried to get us over to Maryland. I kept reminding them that, that we should really think of the D.C. region as a region, D.C. plus Maryland plus D.C., as opposed to D.C. versus Maryland versus D.C. And that's indeed what when Amazon was picking its second headquarters, you know, ultimately it was Northern Virginia, but they really were betting on the region. Yeah, we lump it all together, especially when we're talking about sports as well and call it the DMV. You know, my sons all play football and the DMV puts more players per capita in the NFL than any other place in the United States. So it's stuff like that. But I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about culture wars and a little bit about our polarized politics and media in a second. But before I do that, what do you think has been the biggest obstacle to American innovation in the past and now? Well, I think uh, the way I think about it, you wrote about it in the beginning of the book. America, 250 years ago, was a startup. It was a, it's just an idea. That, like many startups, the country almost failed a couple of times, but eventually kind of broke through. And then kind of led the way with the whole agricultural revolution and led the way with the industrial revolution. More recently, led the way with the technology revolution, the digital revolution. And went from this startup nation to the leader of the pack, or the leading economy. You know, as a result, was kind of the leader of the free world. That's, 
in part, obviously, because of the patriots that forged the republic, but it's also because the entrepreneurs that built the, built the economy, built these industries, and built American leadership. And I think we still have that. America is still the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, but we're clearly at risk. We, we have to make sure we're leaning in the future. We have to recognize that entrepreneurship is globalizing. Big countries like China are focusing on the industries of the future, the technology of the future. So we have to step up our game. And part of my argument is we're not going to be able to win that game unless we have more shots on goal, unless we're backing more people in more places, trying more things. And if we're only putting all our eggs in a few baskets, like Silicon Valley and New York City, Boston, not all across the country, we're likely going to miss out on some of those big opportunities, as well as disadvantaging those entrepreneurs and those those communities. So I think we can continue to lead, but we're going to have to do it in a more inclusive way and have a an economy that's building the future in a way that brings more people and places along with it. A major theme of your book is what you call placemaking. What is placemaking and why is it important? Well, placemaking, as others people think of it as building a, a healthy, sustainable, thriving community, it's really creating a place that is the place where people want to raise their families and a place where people want to start and scale companies. So there's many, many aspects to that and different people will prioritize different aspects to it. But having a, a an environment that's conducive to risk-taking and people trying new things is important. Having a place that is the magnet for talent so people want to move there. They don't want to move away. They want to move there and be part of what you're, you're, you're building. And so there's a lot of aspects to it that are critically important. And we've seen a number of recent successes. Cities like Austin rose up over the last several decades. They always had a strong university, but wasn't a strong startup city. It, the success of Dell there as sort of a tentpole company really was pivotal, as was things that, like the South by Festival that really attracted tens of thousands of people to Austin, most who had never been there before. And some of them were intrigued and decided they wanted to stay there and or move there. And so that's an example of, of a city that just in the last 10, 15 years has really emerged as a strong startup city. Most people didn't expect that a few a few decades ago. And and there are a lot of different aspects to this placemaking that different communities kind of focus on. But doing it in an intentional way is, is critically important if you're going to win the, the battle for talent. What's the kind of advice that you give to business leaders and people who want to start things in places like Cleveland, where there are some real positives? There's a major, as you mentioned, Cleveland Clinic hospital medical community. There are some tentpole companies like Progressive Insurance. There's some financial services there. It's got a pretty stable government, but it's not in a place where a lot of young people want to stay necessarily, even though there's some good universities, Case Western Reserve being foremost among them. What kind of advice do you give to a place like that? You've got to focus on keeping the people you have and and attracting the people that you want. And you can't do that unless, in my opinion, you're focusing on new ideas and, and launching new companies. The startup ecosystem is critically important. Too many cities kind of are resting on their laurels, thinking they have a bunch of big companies and not focusing enough on, on new companies. That's a problem because the data is pretty compelling that half of the Fortune 500 turns over every 25 years. So if you're not continuing building in the future, not continuing to seed new companies, some of your big companies are going to end up being in decline and you're not going to like the way your, your community looks. So you've got to be intentional about backing these new companies, and which means attracting the capital, attracting the talent, establishing the partnerships with some of your existing big companies so they can be helpful, making sure there is 
good collaboration with, with local universities. There's a number of things that need to go into this. And obviously that's part of the reason I wrote the book to, after spending a decade on the road, seeing a lot of things, a lot of places, meeting a lot of people who's tried to share some of the, the lessons learned that I think can apply, whether you're an entrepreneur starting a, starting a company or a mayor running a city or a university president trying to get the university ready for this, this next chapter. So I want to ask you about inflation and its impact on all of this. We're all struggling to some extent with it. It's in the news every day. Our markets are up and down. People are really nervous. It could have an impact on our, it probably will have an impact on our upcoming midterm election and possibly our our election in 2024. What's the impact of inflation on rise of the rest cities in this regard? It's mixed. I would say in general, because interest rates have gone up, which doesn't surprise me, it will be somewhat more difficult for entrepreneurs to raise the venture capital they need and valuation will be somewhat more modest. That said, that's always been the case in Rise of the Rest Cities. There's always been a disconnect, uh, kind of an arbitrage between the valuations in places like Silicon Valley and the valuations in places like uh, Cleveland. And the entrepreneurs, since it is harder for them to raise money, are considerably more capital efficient. Whatever they raise, they, they invest more carefully because they don't take for granted that they can raise more. So actually it will hit the, and we've already seen some data on this, hit the rise of rest cities less than it might hit some of the big tech postal hubs like Silicon Valley. The other dynamic, which is really quite interesting, is when these things, the inflation kicks in and people are more concerned about particularly big companies making their, their near-term earnings, what they do tend to do is trim some of their expenses and pull back from some of their long-term innovation initiatives. Some idea that they thought was a really good idea, but might take five or 10 years to really pay off. Those tend to be on the chopping block, which means entrepreneurs who are challenging those incumbents actually have a better shot at winning. And so the entrepreneurial sector, I think, will in the long run benefit from this, even though some entrepreneurs in some places will have more, more of a challenge raising the capital they need to get started. Steve, with the VC world now being more realistic with funding rounds and valuations, will some of the next big companies happen via traditional organic growth and profitability and not needing, quote unquote, outside investors to supercharge growth? It's a mix. There's always been companies that are able to successfully bootstrap, not have raised outside capital, get to a certain point, maybe raise some debt from a bank loaning the money. So that path has always been available and will continue to be available. But the data is pretty compelling that for the companies that grow the fastest, that create the most jobs and ultimately create the most economic value, overwhelming majority of them do raise venture capital, which is why it is so important for venture capital to be available to more entrepreneurs and more of these rise the rest cities. Our listeners know this because I talk about it a lot on this podcast. I'm teaching a class at University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Journalism about media polarization. We talk a lot about our political polarization, a lot of it derived from our media polarization. What do the culture wars and political polarization have to do with investing and how can they adversely affect it, and especially in some of these cities that are really trying to pop up? Well, I think the jury's out. But I think as people, back to what we were talking about before, as people think about where they want to live and where they want to work, and if they're entrepreneurs, where they want to start companies, there are many factors that they're going to take into consideration. And for some, some of these controversial issues likely will be a factor. They might choose to go someplace else because of something they either like in a certain place or don't like in a, in a certain place. So People who are making these policies need to kind of take that into account. More broadly, there is a 
a disconnect with uh, with Silicon Valley, kind of a backlash against big tech, because a lot of people, a lot of parts of the country don't feel they've really benefited from that. They they see the disruptions we're celebrating around robotics or AI or something else as basically being things that are destroying jobs in, in their community, not, not creating jobs, which is, again, why it's so important to offset that, at least in part, by backing new companies that can affect great new jobs and not just tech jobs, not just coding jobs, but a whole range of jobs that really are are necessary to, to make sure you do have thriving uh, communities. Steve, the book is called Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. It's a great read. Thanks so much for coming on and, and telling us about it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 